So yeah, Justin and the team are in Paris. If you've been reading his um, updates, they've been super awesome to read, really encouraging. Um, you know, Justin has a, a, an amazing gift of articulation, and um, I would highly encourage you guys to just read his journal entries. It's just been really cool. Um, it seems like the team has really been bonding, and um, they've seen a lot of good stuff happen so far. So they did a pretty... or the. They were pushing towards Sunday, so obviously Sunday is gone in France already. So this has already happened, but they showed all the films, and um, I haven't heard exactly how it went, but I know it was, it happened. So thank you for <laughs> thank you for praying with us for them. So let's um, get into the word tonight. Um, we've been in First Corinthians for uh, about. 10 months with some interruptions. So we started in January in chapter 1, and um, we took a few hiatuses into a couple other things. Um, but yeah, it's been a really great thing so far, and we are in chapter 8 starting today. Um, we're starting a new mini-series that Justin appropriately titled Hearts Over Clubs, Why Love Should Trump are petty fighting. And I'm pretty sure he had the name picked out before the, the election got, I don't know. But we can use the verb Trump, okay? It's a word. <laughs> um, I just think that's really funny. Um, so yeah, today we're looking at how love is better than knowledge. So we're going to take a look at verses 1 through 6. Um, before we read it, I just want to mention that Chapters 8, 9, 10, and leading into the first verse of chapter 11 is one cohesive section. It is um, Paul addressing this issue of food offered to idols, and it was clearly a big issue for this church, for this um, culture. Um, so obviously we're only going to look at a short section today, but if you have the time, I would recommend this week... Um, at some point, reading all three chapters um, back to back to back, um, just to kind of get a, a little bit of a, the big picture behind sort of where we're going um, with this section, because he continues to talk about it for a few chapters. So I just wanted to mention that and encourage you to do that. So let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 6 of 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Let's pray again. God, I pray that you would speak to each one of us by your word. And Lord, help us to lay aside those distractions, Lord, that would keep us from really hearing from you. I pray that tonight would just be a sweet time of fellowship with you, of hearing from you and responding to you as we worship afterward. Lord, I just give this time to you. I pray that you would speak to each one by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Okay, so before we get jumping into the text, I just have to um, share a bit of my, my own life. I grew up listening to a radio drama series called Adventures in Odyssey. And I don't know if any of you are familiar, familiar with it, but it is gold for kids and, in my opinion, for adults. Um, 
I actually took the time about three years ago to listen to all 50 albums straight through. Granted, it took me like a year and a half, but I am the better man for it. Um, but there's a character in um, the book, or sorry, the book, it's not a book, it's, it's, a, ser- it's, a, it's a radio series. Um, his name's Mr. Whitaker. He's like the old, wise, sage, ice cream parlor owner slash inventor extraordinaire. And there's an episode of Adventures in Odyssey called Rights, Wrongs, and Reasons. And this will have a point, I promise. But this game, Rights, Wrongs, and Reasons, that Mr. Whitaker plays with the kids in his shop is he sets forward a scenario with characters and the characters make decisions and things happen and the kids in the shop have to answer, okay, did this character do the right thing or the wrong thing? And then, and then they also have to decide, did they do it for the right reason or the wrong reason? And so one of the examples would have been um, uh, there's a girl in the principal's office and the principal called her up to kind of find out what went on in the gym because a window ended up being broken. And the girl actually tells the principal the truth that the new girl bounced the basketball against the window and broke the window. And, but we find out later that um, she only told the truth because she doesn't like the new girl and she really wanted to get her into trouble. And so Mr. Whitaker points out that, yeah, she told the truth, but she did it to get this girl into trouble because she didn't like her. So she did the right thing for the wrong reason or a right wrong. Hey, kids. <clears throat> but the reason I share that is, um, <laughs> is because in this passage and in this entire three-chapter section, Paul is going at a very gentle rate of explaining to the Corinthians, firstly, that their actions that they're doing are motivated by the wrong things. So he's not going to get to whether their actions right now about food offered to idols is right or wrong. He's kind of getting into their motivation behind them. Why are they doing that? What is the reason why they feel like they can go ahead and and participate? So all that to say is they are doing, as we'll find out later, a wrong wrong. But before we jump into this um, passage, we got to do a little bit of footwork because there's some cultural and conversational context that we need to lay the groundwork for, okay? So we're going to do a little bit of kind of setting the scene before we jump in. The reason is because we are currently in Seattle, Washington, and it is 2016, and we are not in the ancient city city of Corinth in 55 AD or so. So that's why we have to lay this groundwork because we need to kind of get why we're even talking about food offered to idols. What is this? Okay. So that's why we're going to do this. So two contexts, the conversational context and the cultural context. So the conversational context is the fact that this is a letter, right? This is a letter written from one person to a group of people. And not only is this a letter, but it's a response to another letter. So we already have two threads in this conversation that we don't even see, okay? We are looking at the third of five emails, okay? We only have one. Actually, we have two because we have 2 Corinthians, but we're not there yet. Um, So, Paul actually references these two letters that have come before this in, um, in this letter. In chapter 5, verse 9, he mentions, I wrote to you in my last letter. Okay, So that was Paul's last letter. But then in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul starts to address what they wrote to him back about. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Okay, So that's all just to say that this is the third of a series of letters back and forth. It's kind of like one side of a phone conversation. I I work at a clinic, and we have curtains that divide the station from the patients. And sometimes there's there's hard-of-hearing patients um, who 
get phone calls while they're getting their infusions. And <laughs> it's just funny because they're hard of hearing, so they must yell back, right? And so we only hear one side of that phone conversation, and it's, a, and it's very loud. And, but we don't hear the other side because they're in the phone. So that's kind of what, what we're doing. We've got to do a little bit of investigative um, research into what he's actually talking about. So that's the conversational context, the cultural context. Looking at verse 1 there, he says, food offered to idols. What is this? What is going on here? Why do we as 21st century Western Christians care about this issue? Why do we even need to hear about it? So let me just explain what was going on culturally here. So... That word, it's one word. It means literally something offered to images. And in ancient culture, there were idol temples, shrines that would perform sacrifices to whatever idol that that temple was about, okay? And so um, the food or the meat that was brought to, to be sacrificed would be separated into three parts, so there was the first part that literally was burnt up and gone. That's the part that is for the idol because it's gone. It was burnt. Um, the second part is the worshiper's part. So if I brought a big rack of beef to the temple, then I would get to partake in at least a third of it for myself or my friends or whoever I wanted to share it with. So I could go ahead and eat that. The third part was the priest's part. And this part was for the person who helps to, you know, actually staff the temple, burn the sacrifices, light the altar, and do his thing. And he or she could take that portion and take it home and eat it, eat it there, or take it to the marketplace and sell it and just get a little extra cash, okay? So that was the three parts. And so in this, in this church, in this situation, um, Paul alludes to three different scenarios that would have played out um, with food offered to idols. So we're going to just take a peek at, each, at the three um, before, we, before we jump into it. So the third one we'll, we'll spend a little bit more time on, but the first one is um, the meat that was sold in the marketplace. So the meat that the priest didn't want, wanted a little extra cash, let's bring it, I'll just bring it and sell it to a vendor. Um, Paul says, that meat, go ahead and buy it. That's fine. You get a good deal on it, it's a bargain, great. Don't worry about where it came from. Thumbs up. And that's chapter 10. And then the second um, scenario that he alludes to here in this section is also in chapter 10, where he mentions eating dinner at like a non-Christian's house. So your non-Christian friend invites you over for dinner. He sets out food for you. You don't have to worry about where it came from. There's a caveat to that, like if he mentions where it came from. But is, if nothing is mentioned, you don't have to start digging into where it came from. Just eat it. You're at your friend's house. He's being, or he or she's being hospitable to you. Go ahead and, and enjoy. Um, thumbs up. Go ahead. But then, and this is where we'll, we'll camp for a minute, is in chapter 8, this food offered to idols would have been this food that was burnt in the temple, the worshiper's part, that he or she would then share with whoever's there. And like at a, a din they would have, this is a normal thing, first of all. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. But, um, so the food that was eaten in the idol shrine, that was the th that's the third sort of scenario that we find here in chapter 8. So until chapter 10, this is likely what Paul is talking about. This is the food eaten at the idol's temple. Okay? And like I, I jumped ahead of myself, but this was a normal thing. This is like a cultural, normal, Corinthian ancient Grecian thing that everybody did. Um, religion, politics, 
business, social life, family life, these are things are all intertwined in this culture. They're not sort of like our culture where we put everything in its own little box. Everything is together. In fact, it would have been even inconvenient for Christians in this culture to resist or to stop going to these things um, because they were so related to, to business, to social things. And so, so then they take issue with Paul about it. So that's, that's why they are writing to him about this. To try and bring it a little bit closer, it would be sort of like, you know, a middle-aged 50-something mom has like a 25-year-old son who wants to be like a metal worker. And so he enlists and gets trained in a guild. And this guild puts on dinner parties, feasts, celebrations, things where they would rent out the idol's temple for the night. They would do a sacrifice to whatever idol that they felt like sacrificing to and then proceed with their networking event. And so the mom finds out that this son has become a Christian and he's like, oh, I don't know if I could do this anymore. I don't know if I can participate in this thing that's going to advance my career, but it's also we're eating food offered to this God. I don't, I'm, I'm kind of like, ooh. And, um, and she's like, well, come on. Are you going to throw away your career for this religion? So that's a little bit closer. That kind of makes it a little less like, ooh, food offered to idols. Why was that even a thing? It was a thing. It was normal. But the thing is, in chapter 10, Paul eventually says, this is wrong. Eating food in an idol's temple is wrong. But here's the thing. Paul was not against food. It wasn't, food wasn't the big deal for Paul. The issues for him were in caring, for, caring and watching out for others and making certain not to participate in the worship of an idol. With food, Paul's like, go on, buy your groceries, take it home, cook dinner, don't worry about it. Okay, so now that we've done a little bit of homework, we can kind of proceed. So here in the introduction to this entire section in verses 1 through 6, what Paul's going to do, he's going to redirect the Corinthians away from behavior that's solely based on their knowledge and back to an ethic of behavior based on love and, based, and rooted in their relationship with God. And we'll notice that he doesn't, like, go for the Apostle Paul kill shot of, nope, eh, can't do it, sorry. He's, he's being gentle with them. He's going to take his time and write a persuasive, yes, argument leading them to where they should be and not coercing them. He's saying, here's why you're currently doing this. Let me just show you, and it's not right. Let me show you the right way. Okay, so let's read um, verses 1 through 3 again, and then we'll talk about that. So he says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So this is the third time here in verse 1 that Paul uses this phrase, now concerning. I mentioned earlier that starting in chapter 7, he began to turn his attention in his letter to what they had written to him about. So for the, for the first six chapters, he was addressing things that he wanted to talk about first. But now he's like, okay, I'll write back about, you know, it's kind of like when we're replying to an email, we, we sort of like, keep glancing back up at the next person's email and, and build our email based on their last one. So that's what he's doing. So now he's finally reached this issue, and he'll spend a few chapters on it. So 
he turns to this issue that they most likely have already been conversing and writing him about. And Paul probably, in a previous letter, had a more blanket sort of injunction against uh, eating food offered to idols. So in this letter, they're not like opening up a new topic like, hey, we just thought of something. Can we, is it cool to eat food offered to idols? But what they're doing is um, responding to his previous letter saying, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, why can't we do this? Why can't we eat food offered to idols? Here are some reasons why we think it's fine. Okay, so in verse 1, we find their first sort of reason, their first statement that Paul goes to bat against. Um, gently, of course. But So the reason number one is all of us possess knowledge. And most scholars believe that that, that sentence is a direct quote from their letter that Paul then starts to address. So what they're saying is, okay, related to this thing, we, as, as Christians in Corinth, we have knowledge that convinces us that we're okay doing this th- stuff that we want to do. We're okay to keep doing this. And Paul sees this. He says, okay, you're, you're saying this is just because you know. This is just your knowledge saying it's fine. He sees it and he's like, are you really about to say that the basis for your behavior as believers in Jesus Christ, the basis for your behavior is that you're in the know? Now, we just got to understand that Paul is not against knowledge. He, he, he's already spoken highly of knowledge, even in chapter 1, um, verse 5. But he is very clear like we'll see in chapter 13, as a lot of us know it as the love chapter, right, when he talks about love, that just like other good things, knowledge without love is worthless. So this is what he wants to address. The Corinthians here are just looking for a good excuse to keep doing what they want to do. Let's take a gander real quick, um, just like a page over at... Paul's motivation for his behavior, because that's what we're looking at right now. We're looking at their motivation for their behavior. So in chapter 9, verse 22 and 23, he says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So Paul's filter of what he like should and shouldn't do or can and cannot do is the gospel. He says in deciding, you know, how to behave, he says, how can I best show the gospel to these people? How can I best live in a way that declares Jesus Christ to these people? The Corinthians motivation is, uh, we know it's fine. So then Paul contrasts knowledge here with love pretty hardcore. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So why does he pit knowledge and love against each other here? Well, we can take a peek at verse 11 to see that this knowledge that they're talking about lacks love for others. In verse 11, he says, So by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. And so he's interested in going to bat against a self-interested knowledge that is the basis for their behavior. That word puffs up can mean like it sounds, um, well, it does mean like it sounds, to inflate, to blow up, sort of like, um, a balloon, one thing, or for some reason I couldn't get the image out of my head of one of those Jiffy Lube inflatable dancing men. You know, the guys where you're driving and it's just going, woo, yeah, because there's air just like flowing through his vinyl body. Contrasting that with builds up, which means to edify or to bolster up with support, sort of like a building, 
a brick building. Looking at those two side by side, a balloon or an inflatable dancing man, or a brick building, a balloon is one item. It's not going to be together with anything other than maybe some other balloons that it'll just bump up against. But it's not going to be, it's not incorporated into any grouping. It's just one thing just floating there, bearing itself loftily. And yet a brick building is made up of scores and scores of bricks, all held fast together, supporting each other. And so knowledge by itself, without love, will only divide between who knows and who doesn't. Love, on the other hand, binds us to each other. A guy named Mitchell wrote, that's not his first name, it's his last name, um, that love is the mortar between the bricks of the church. So it's a, it's a substance that literally builds and has a purpose and it accomplishes something. That's what love does versus knowledge. At the end of our life, this is just easy to illustrate. When we're, when we're at that end point, what is going to matter? Right? Is it going to be how much we know and how much we, how much knowledge we accumulated, um, or is it going to be how well did I love the people that God gave me to love? How well did I love God Himself? How well did I, did I pour myself out for others? So then he turns and continues his um, discussion about knowledge in verse two. He says. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So here he declares that pride in your knowledge is an ironic indication of a lack of knowledge. In other words, if you think you know it all, you really don't, is what he's saying. Christian knowledge requires humility. It's it's. It requires a knowing that you don't know. So notice Paul says, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Or another word for ought is needs. Right? He, he doesn't know as he needs to know. Which is just an odd thing to think about. But to put it strangely, what he's saying is we need to know as Christians that we don't know what we need to know. <laughs> I'll say it again because it's just hard to think about. We need to know that we don't know what we need to know. It kind of reminds me of chapter 3, verse 18 that says, Anyone who thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he may become wise. So because Christianity, because a life lived in right relationship with God is not a set of things to know, but it's a relationship with Jesus. It requires that we be self-aware of our lack of knowledge. Pride doesn't fit that paradigm, but a relationship of love does. And that reality is what he turns to here chapter, or in verse 3. He says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So he directs the Corinthians to a relational knowledge based on loving God and being known by him. So it's not about what you know. It's about loving the person that knows you and that knows you fully. It's about this relationship. Why? Why? Why is this the case? Remember, this whole thing, Paul is talking about idols. So, this relationship with the true God and worshiping him alone is where he's going to focus his point here. That's what should be the purpose of our lives. That's what should inform our behavior. So, as we draw near to God the achievements that we feel proud of and the failures over which we despair dissolve because of being known by him. 
So that reminds us that God is the initiator in this whole thing, right? So John wrote in another way that we love because he first loved us. This is a, this entire thing is a response. Us coming to church even tonight is not the first action that has been done in this whole thing, right? God is the one that you came to commune with. He's the one who loves you so much that you want to learn more about him. You want to know him. You want to worship him. You want to commune with those who do. And isn't our being known what we're looking for? I know this is true for myself. The fantastic truth is that even though our current knowledge, even of God, is limited, God still knows us fully. Uh, A verse that illustrates this is in this letter in chapter 13, at the end of that chapter on love, Paul writes, For now, here on this earth, we see like in a mirror dimly. Like it's all fogged up. It's like you're at the rest stop and it's all scratched up, the mirror. It's just like a sheet of metal. I can't tell if my hair, it doesn't matter. I'm on a road trip. But then when we get to heaven, we see face to face. We see with perfect clarity. And then he says, now I know in part. I know partially. But then I shall know fully. And he says, even as I've been fully known. So this is why in times of hardship, in times of indecision, in times of Hardship, especially that lies in our hearts and our minds, sort of that, those inner struggles that we deal with. <clears throat> That's why we can pray like David in Psalm 139 when he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my cares. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed that psalm because it just gets at the human desire that we want to be known. We want to be, we want someone to be able to see in there, but we're afraid to because there's a lot to see (laughs) and some of it is not pretty. But the good news is that through Christ, God not only knows us in that way, but he accepts us completely through Christ. So that's where we can start our others focusedness is in that place of being fully known by God and therefore we have nothing to be afraid of anymore in relationship we're not acting out of fear of what others think we're we're acting from a place of belovedness which is just such good news that we need to hear and preach to ourselves you know every day uh, an example in a in a human relationship of this this whole thing um, is it's sort of like so I'm married I have a wife and I know that my marriage is secure I know that that the D word will never come up um, and I know things will be things in general will be will be fine and this is sort of like if I took that knowledge that things are good, we're in a secure relationship, and I was like, I'm pretty sure I can, like, hang out with this gal who's a friend, sort of one-on-one, just hanging out whenever, it's fine. Or I can, I can spend hours playing video games, getting the new Mario OS, hopefully. Um, and I can, I can do those things in our relationship, it'll be fine, it'll, it won't end right? The difference between that and what Paul may be talking about here is that's a filter of behavior based on what's fine, what I know. I know it'll be fine. But what if my filter of behavior was how can I show complete love and adoration for my wife? What behavior can I do that will totally and completely convince her of my undying love? It's just a different filter. One is saying, I can do it, it's fine. One is saying, how can I show love to this person? And with, with God, we do this often. We've, 
we fail to filter things through our love for him and our, our desire to glorify him, and we filter them through what we can and can't do because we feel like, you know, we just want to do what we want to do. <clears throat> when our own desires are driving our life instead of our love for God, we are prone to walk away from him and to other things for our fulfillment. As humans, we're just prone to idol worship. And not in the way that the Corinthians might have been, but in, in, in many cases, more ways, right? So now that Paul has redirected them here in the first section, one through three, back to an ethic of behavior rooted in God's love, he returns to the subject at hand here in verse four through six. He says, so therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So here we arrive at the Corinthians' second and third reasons for, for um, part, continuing to participate in this stuff. And they're theological. So, again, Paul is persuading. He's not coercing. He's going to meet them where they're at. He's going to find common ground. Because he does agree mostly with what they're saying as far as these theological statements. But he wants to clarify them. So, Reason number two we see is idols aren't real. That's why we can do that. They're not real. It's fine. They're not going to do anything to us. They're not going to help us or hurt us or anything because they're not real. Um, the NASB reads um, this first statement as, there is no such thing as an idol in the world. And Paul there agrees with that. But it's like, um, it's like the Corinthians are saying, hey, listen, Paul, I know that we used to worship, you know, this God and that God, um, but now that we're Christians, the reality is that when we're walking down the street, we're just not going to run into those guys. Like Zeus, Poseidon, Asclepius, Dionysius, the sun, the god of the sea. We're just, they're not going to do anything to us. Like, what's the problem? And so they're like, going to a party for, yeah, it's in their honor, but, but it's for business reasons, it's for social reasons, or for family reasons, isn't a big deal. And so Paul um, chews on it, this for a minute in verse 5. He, he says, Okay, although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth. And then he pauses. He, there's, a, there's a break there. He's like, it's like he's chewing on it. He's, he's considering it. Another version says, even if there are so-called gods. So he's saying, yes, these idols, these other gods, Zeus, He's not really real, really real in significance, okay? But does the fact, and this is a question that I'm asking, does the fact that these idols aren't real mean that people aren't centering their lives around them? Does it mean that just because they're not real, does it mean that people don't worship them? and give them their lives. So Paul can't help but interrupt himself there in verse 5 and say, indeed, there are many gods and many lords. There's just no other way around it. There's, yes, they're not real compared with God, but they're there because people worship them. 
A side note there, and then we'll kind of get a little bit deeper into what I just said, is that these many gods and many lords in heaven or on earth, these would have been, like I kind of listed off, those mythical gods like Zeus and Hermes, but then also the many lords on earth might have been these emperor cults, that there's that funky um, divinity deity that they apply that to them. So he's including all of these deities that the culture would have assented to in that time. But I want to just take a peek at another passage, uh, another letter that Paul writes in Galatians um, that really, I think, explains this concept of of this really well. Um, you don't have to turn there, but in Galatians 4, 8, and 9, Paul writes, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, there's that again, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So the key there is that people are enslaved to things that aren't really gods. They're not of any real value at all, but they still enslave. So this is a worship issue. This is, this is like me saying, I'm not going to meet the God of comfort on the street, so I don't have to worry about him, but... The fact is, by golly, I worship the God of comfort pretty often. And in our culture, idolatry is incredibly subtle and incredibly deceptive because they're good things, right? Success, buying a house, family, comfort, all these things are good, but when they take the place of God, when, they, <laughs> when we go ahead and give them everything, like our time, our money, our thoughts, that's a big one for me, our emotions, that's another big one, our schedule, and anything else that we can sacrifice <laughs> to obtain their favor, I bow down to thee, God of comfort. So after getting a little bit sidetracked here, Paul goes, goes ahead and finishes his sentence. <laughs> so he's, he confirmed the reality that, yes, indeed, there are many gods and many lords. But then he goes ahead and finishes his sentence here. He, he started it in verse four or, uh, 5, sorry. Although there may be so-called gods, and then in verse 6 he finishes it. He says, yet for us there is one God. And so we reach the final of the three reasons that the Corinthians have been, uh, that Paul is addressing, um, that they gave him. Reason number three, which is, there is no God but one. So there's only one God, so me participating in this isn't a big deal, okay? And he, in general, like the other one, generally agrees with this statement. There is no God but one. You're right. But, however, since the Corinthians were downplaying the issue of idol worship, Paul wants to contrast the Christian worship of God against the many gods and many lords of their culture. So he writes, For us Christians, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Isn't that just a cool verse? And it's interesting and, and cool that while Paul's intention was to clarify Christian worship right now, he's, he's like, okay, let me just show you who this God is. He inadvertently pens this beautiful statement about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. 
There's no reading this verse without coming away with the divinity of Jesus Christ. It's hard to do. But we can also notice, and it's, this, is all, this is just a little side note stuff that's really cool and interesting. He doesn't seem miffed at all by confirming the monotheistic nature of Christianity, of God, while at the same time here distinguishing between the person of the Father and the person of the Son. So he holds those both in his hands. And he's not like, I can't, how does this work? It's just, it's just what it is. It's cool stuff. But back to this statement. So he's, he's taking their statement, there is one God, and he's, he's describing who this God is. So he writes that God, there's God the Father, from whom are all things. We're just going to walk through this thing real quick. It's, it's just so beautiful because what it, what it does is describes God in the context of what he has done for us. So, first we have God the Father who is the source of life from whom we are. He is the source. He is the creator. And then we have Jesus Christ by whom are all things. So Jesus is the divine mediator in creation. Like in Colossians 1, all things were made at his hand. And then Jesus Christ, through whom we exist. So we have this redemptive work of Jesus Christ that without which we wouldn't have an eternal existence. We are here because and through him. And then God the Father for whom we exist. So this life that we live is lived for the glory and praise of God the Father. So he's taken their statement and he's just, he's just clarifying it a little bit. He says this one God, yes, he is our creator, our redeemer, and whose glory we live for. He is everything. Why does he pen this beauty? Um, to quote a commentator, he's trying to drive the point home that the redemptive activity of the Father and the Son is the basis of Christian behavior. So Paul, he's going to go on to discuss idolatry and, th- and their behavior and, and, and all that further in chapter 10. But first, he sets forth a better way to filter our behavior through Christ-centered love. The truth is, I do, I do not know how to be the man that God wants me to be. I don't know how to carry out these things that he's set in my life. I don't know how to love the people he's given to me. I'm constantly in a state of, of indecision, of insecurity, of doubt, even this week. But when I draw near to God, to the God who has known me and knows me in those weaknesses, in those moments, that it is at that moment when God enables me to love those that he has given to me. It's like a breath of fresh air that just cuts right through that fog of self-doubt, self-absorption. And it starts with being known by God. That's because that's where that because he started it. He started this whole thing in not only knowing us, but then doing something about it. Right? He did everything about it. And that's where we can draw from. That's where we can draw. That reality is where we need to be. That's where we need to sit on a daily basis. We're desperate for Jesus, every one of us, whether we're in a good spot, in a, in a good spot where we're just feeling good, it's fine, it's good, or in a rough spot, in a transition, in a, a job change, a family change, a, a death, a, you name it, we're, 
the fact remains we are desperate for Jesus. And we desperately need to draw from this wellspring of God's love in order to rightly love those in our lives. He knows us intimately, and because of Jesus, he accepts us readily. So let's go ahead and draw near to God together so that his love can be our motivation. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gospel, which basically says you knew us and you still loved us, and therefore you did something about it. Jesus, you came and died in our place so that we can be in right relationship to you, in right relationship with others, so that we don't filter our actions through what we know, what we think we can do, what, what we'll, how we'll just get by, but we can filter our life through the love that you've poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that your Spirit would pour out your love in our hearts even tonight. Help us to respond to your love, but first to internalize it or to, to accept it. Or a lot of times we struggle accepting your love we're so distracted by how we don't deserve it. Lord, help us to respond to your love tonight and this week in our jobs, in our families, in our situations. God, let your love direct our actions. In Jesus' name we pray. So we're going to respond um, in singing.